Hey, Angela here. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to invite you to join our Substack community, where you'll get more founder profiles, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, first access to all my original work, and access to our community group chat. All you have to do is click the link in the description. I love and appreciate your support. It's awesome to see all your comments, email responses, and reactions. I'm happy to share this journey with you. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you guys so much for listening to Honey and Hustle. We are a visual podcast that features conversations with small business owners, creative entrepreneurs, and those in the nonprofit community. We're so glad that we started sharing our podcast here on Anchor FM. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, and it will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on all the major platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so many more. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. If you're listening to this right now, download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Thank you to Blackology Coffee Company for sponsoring this video. Take 10% off your next order at Blackology Coffee Company by using the link at the description, www.blackologycoffeecompany.com backslash Angela. Hey everybody, my name is Angela. I am your host and producer of Funny and Hustle, and I am joined all the way from New York by Joey Kilrain who is the founder of Dead Company, a digital experience design company. I'm so, so excited to dive into UX design because I feel like there's so much I don't know. If I don't know a lot, there's probably some people out there who feel the same. They probably use different things throughout the day, but they have no idea what was the thought process behind why this works the way that it does. So I'm loving Joey. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I can't wait to hear all about how you came to found Dead Company and your experience throughout working with UX design over the years. Awesome. Thank you for that, man. Yeah, it's, I'm excited to be a part of it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to try to break this big old thing they call design down into small little molecules. <clears throat> so I guess we could start off with just like, what is design, right? Like, uh, in its simplest term, and me being as sarcastic as I can be, design is whatever. That's it. Design could be a spoon. It could be how you sit on a seat, how a car door opens, all that stuff. However, where design plays a critical role is when design is is meant for a certain purpose. And uh, so for example, I'm, I'm working on an article now discussing elevator buttons and how an elevator button, like how you have to reach it. And they have a lot of these fancy elevators now where you could just use a card and that card takes you to the right floor. That's totally fine, right? I get that. There's other ones where it's a touch screen. And that's cool, like, ooh, touch screen, touch it, whatever number you want to do and go do your thing. And then there is what you find in New York City in the elevators where they're just simple push buttons to get things done. And one of the first challenges when we're talking about uh, the elevator is, well, who's the audience? So if you're thinking of these high rise hotels, you know, or, or big businesses, let's say, the majority of the people going in there are probably going to have full, full function of their bodies meaning they're probably going to be about maybe five foot to like, let's say six foot is probably a general size. <clears throat> they're probably going to have a diameter of anywhere between 100 pounds, to like maybe 200 pounds. So we know how many people we can fit in the elevator. But more importantly, they'll be able to reach and hit all the buttons. And they'll probably have the vision to do all that, <clears throat> which that's the perfect world. We don't live in a perfect world. And there are 4.4% of our 
people in our country, not just in our country, but globally, that have vision impairments. They may not see certain colors. They may not see, uh, they may see blurry vision and that kind of stuff. And when you think of like these buttons where everything looks very nice, if you don't look at it from the lens of someone who has vision challenges, they may not be able to push those buttons. And a lot of people feel uh, uh, embarrassed at times when they have like certain challenges, right? Because they may be picked on when they were younger or it just may be a complex that they have about certain things. So as a designer, our goal is to identify who is the audience that we're talking with. Uh, another example would be if you're in these fancy elevators and what if someone's in a wheelchair, how do they reach all the buttons? Uh, or an even better one is what if the person is blind? They need braille to feel the buttons to do their stuff. Or another example that we identified is what if there's a woman with her child and God forbid something happens to the woman and the child has to react, but your help button is too far for them to reach. Like all those things, right? Or, or people that, you know, may have uh, ch challenges with height, you know, like how do they reach that button? So all those things go into what we do as design, like designing it so that it does a certain purpose. A lot of times uh, design can slow things down because design requires research. You know, we're going to try to target a particular audience. And sometimes people don't like to slow down because they want to rush, rush, rush to market. And I get you, you can rush to market, but you can also find yourself building it twice or maybe even three times because you didn't take an ounce of prevention to just do a little bit of research to try to figure it out. So that would be design out the gate. Okay, yeah. Um, and I like that. You touched on um, really working to create designs that work for people and by people not just one specific average person who is average height average vision vision ability you know average physical ability to press buttons reach buttons but just everyone who could possibly yeah. right um so there's a push that i've seen um on social media called design for good which is really uh working to make design inclusive and ada accessible and awesome. all the other things, right? Um, and so you talk about this from an elevator standpoint, but there's a lot of different ways that design requires research in order to be usable and functional. Functional, that's not a word, functional. For functional, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what I do specifically is I'm a visual designer and I do a lot of work with big data uh, companies or enterprise companies. So an enterprise company would be something like Urson Young, uh, KPMG, uh, Facebook, uh, uh, Nike, like any of these companies that require an online application or like a bank. So let's take uh, TD Bank, for example, really easy one. Uh, for TD Bank, when you log in, chances are you're going to be logging in with one screen that has like your username and your password. And then how do I get through all that? And for me, as a designer, I would think about, okay, what are the screens or what are the options that have to be on that screen? and how do I guide the customer to success? So success could be a couple of things. Success could be logging in, success could be regaining my password, uh, or success could be joining, you know, those three things. So what are those hierarchies that are there? And then you would think about what, what's, what are they probably looking for when they first log in? And chances are you probably know your username and you probably know your password. But a secondary would be, I forgot my username or I forgot my password. So when I think of the buttons, the calls of the buttons, <clears throat> the button that's going to stick out the most is going to be login. The next button that's going to stick out is forgot password or forgot username. That's it. And from there, you know, we guide that experience. So we would do 
uh, the research part, meaning like, okay, we know the majority of the customers come here to log in, blah, blah, blah. And then we would do the look and feel to make sure that what you see here for TD Bank looks like you're at TD Bank versus if you log into Chase, uh, 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 Chase Morgan where they'll probably have a different looking field. They have a lot of blue and a lot of red, where where um, uh, TD Bank has a lot of green and gray in what they do. And uh, yeah, so for, for someone like myself, we would go and map out that whole thing. Now, I know it's it's easier said than done, and I could, I could give you an example of how we've gone ahead and put those big systems together, but we boil it down to what's called uh, atomic methodologies. Uh, and uh, you've ever heard of that term, atomic methodologies? So atomic methodologies is basically taking something really big and then breaking it down to its smallest molecule. So for example, if you think of like a button, the button would just be like the container, but in that button, there is a font. That font is the molecule. Now, however big that font is, is gonna impact your button. So if my font is tiny, I'll probably have a tiny button, but if my button or my font's bigger, I'll probably have a bigger button. We identify all that <clears throat> and we set that up so that when other uh, designers or even developers have to start building the application, they know that this is the right size for that font. Whether it's this big or this big, all that stuff is mapped out. So when they put it into the system, there's only consistency. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that, speaking of user ability, I want to put LinkedIn on the hot seat for a second because LinkedIn has cool. updated um, their user design experience, right? A couple months ago. Uh, so switching from kind of your hard square and rectangular buttons to kind of rounded edges, um, a little more contrasty on your punchier blues and some light grays mixing with the white space. So kind of adding some different layers of texture so that people who maybe are vision impaired can see a little bit clearly and designate text and buttons a little bit better. Mm -hmm. From what I, from the very little that I understand and that I read about the update, of course, I saw it and I've been using it. Um, but LinkedIn is a little bit more, comp I wouldn't say more complex than a bank, but um, people use LinkedIn for different reasons, right? There's people who use LinkedIn to find a job. There's people who use LinkedIn to grow their network. And there's people who use LinkedIn as jobs, as business owners to find employees, find talent, um, and just spread the message about what their company is doing, right? Um, so with that in mind, LinkedIn has different premium levels and things like that. Um, and I think and to my understanding, again, because they know that so many people are using the platform for different reasons, they updated the UX experience so that people could navigate the platform a little bit better and make it a little bit more nimble, make it easier for you to interact with, you know, posts and comments and job postings and things like that. Um, what is your take on this new updated um, UX <laughs> UI design that they've implemented and how do you think that um, is making it more accessible maybe from an ADA standpoint so people who uh, may be able to put alt text behind a photo, things like that, make things a little more user friendly for people who may be using this at all different user experience levels, people who've been on LinkedIn for a long time, to people who are now newly probably in the job market because of the pandemic and who are trying to navigate this for the first time to find a job. Um, hmm. I would love to hear your take on that. Yeah, awesome. Well, <clears throat> I would say with with every um, uh, with every product that's out there, I you know there's always something that I don't like, right, or something that annoys me. But I cannot make it just about me. I have to hear what other people have to say. So one thing as a designer, my goal in every conversation is to remove the emotion 
from that decision. Because let's say, you know, you and I are working on something and then you say, I don't like the color blue. <sighs> okay. You don't like the color blue. Now, that's an emotional way of looking at it. A science way is to say, okay, that color blue, not only is it ADA compliant, but it's the same color you use in the brand. So we can change that color. However, it will not look like the brand color and it won't be ADA compliant. And that immediately usually takes the air out of the argument. Or another great one, the logo's too small. I think, dude, killing me. I heard, I've been hearing that for years. And the, the argument there is very simple. We can make it bigger, but it's not gonna fit in the framework. So it's like saying, I want my window in my house to be bigger. I'm like, oh, I mean, yeah, we could do it, but we're gonna have to do all this work to change it. Is it that deep? And if it is, okay. But now you know it's gonna take X amount of hours to go and do that or we keep it as is. And that's a very easy way of how a lot, and, and again, I don't think a lot of designers do this. I think a lot of them just make the change and just you know, complain about it the entire time that they have to go do it versus trying to take a objective approach versus a subjective solution to what, because then at the end of the day, if it breaks, the client would say something like, well, how come you didn't tell me? And I'm like, well, I did tell you. But like, no, no, you gotta tell them. You gotta put the science to it to let them know, yo, this is the way to go at it. But getting back to LinkedIn, uh, I would say uh, for, for me, LinkedIn became an absolute necessity when COVID hit. Absolutely. Uh, I, I found that um, like for me, the, the way I operate is I'm always looking to see how can I help someone. And I thought of my colleagues that are out there and a lot of them got laid off. And I think, yo, these guys are like, I've known them for like 15, 20 years. They, they're amazing at what they do. So what can I do as a designer to help them? And believe it or not, I was able to like collaborate with these cats and build other stuff and have them help me do things. But it was all through LinkedIn. Now, I use LinkedIn on the premium level and I use it for either finding opportunities or uh, or just staying in touch with people. Kind of like Facebook, but I don't go to LinkedIn to curse. I, I, I use LinkedIn for like, you know, finding opportunity. I don't go off there to rant or none of that stuff. I use Facebook for that. Uh, <clears throat> and even that I've cut back on because it's just pointless. Uh, however, LinkedIn, where I find the biggest challenge with it is when you get into Sales Navigator and how the two of those things are absolutely separate. I think it broke. There is no connection between the two of these things. It's like you have a twin and you separated the twin and the twins can't talk to each other. It's like they have no idea that, that, that they're, you know, they came from the womb at the same time. And I find that to be the biggest challenge with LinkedIn, with Sales Navigator. Now, another things that go on with LinkedIn is, uh, have you ever tried publishing an article in draft mode and then going and finding it? No. <laughs> that whole thing. So in order, I have not been able to figure out with the exception that if I want to make a, like publish an article, but I've already done it as a draft, I have to click on create an article, then go into the upper left corner and click on publish and go look at where the article is and then get it from there versus going to my LinkedIn homepage and say, oh, here's all my articles. Let me go edit the article I just wrote. It's such a, you know, bass backwards approach to trying to get to that, to that page. But as far as the other things to LinkedIn, uh, like, you know, the events and all that, your feed and all that, I don't think it's any different than Facebook. You can filter it to your liking, you can unfollow people, you know, so I haven't seen anything there that makes me say, uh, like, yeah, like, you know, how would you make it better? 
because I think that's up to the customer to do it. But as far as like legibility and all that goes, I haven't seen anything on there that that makes it difficult for me. And I'm, I'm pre- and I I say that me meaning like because I'm always looking at how other people have to interpret stuff. So I, I, I don't, but is there anything that you saw in particular that you didn't like? Oh yeah, so I'm very. Awesome. <laughs> Sorry, like, no, no, cool. I love this stuff. I, I don't I, like a UX UI designer, but there are some things that I just feel like are should be common sense or should be okay. When somebody says, it. Oh, I'm going to update this, this should mm-hmm. be a part of an update. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. At bare minimum, you should be getting to where other things are in terms of the, you know, features that they offer. There's no native scheduling on LinkedIn. None, like at all. Have you noticed that? Native, like, so break that down for me. So like, let's say I want to create a post um, sharing this podcast episode. When I start writing the draft, either I get to publish it right then or I have to leave it. Um, so I can't like just schedule it, like write it, schedule it for next Monday to post. I have to go through Hootsuite, right? Or just like post it right then. I think that so, yeah, that's awesome. And so it's funny because it's very similar to the article post, the article situation that you mentioned. So I don't do a lot of, po- I mean, I do do posts, but mostly it's article stuff that I write and put up there. But yeah, that's terrible. Like, why not? That's not a huge feature ad right there. It's not like you're reinventing the wheel. No. And it's like, I don't know, just in my mind, I'm just like, if you know that people, you have an increased need of people using this platform, whether that's people who are looking to hire, who maybe are scheduling, they know they're going to make this job posting available this day, this time, and they want to make a post or company the fact that, hey, my company is hiring, hey, come work with me, blah, blah, blah. But mm. they have to physically be on the platform. Let's talk about people who, <clears throat> from an employer or um, hiring standpoint, like they're busy. They're busy right now. HR people are busy right now. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Trying to mm-hmm. make sure that they are you know, meeting the needs of employees, meeting the needs of new hires, um, making sure that people who um, maybe were let go recently, stop access to benefits or their service package, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. People are busy, myself included. Like I don't want to be on social media all the time. I want social media to work for me. Um, and so in my mind, when it comes to UX, UX, UI design, like that's a part of it. I think there's some loss somehow. There's some disconnection between how people intuitively would like to use a platform and that can be seen in like visual hierarchy design and how people um, could use a platform for the betterment of creating connections and being more social, which is, you know, allowing for native scheduling, allowing for um, not even third-party apps to manage, you know, content, but also just like analytics, um, see what, what people are responding to, what people are liking, what people are engaging with the most, which is- Yeah, (coughs) that's very limited. I'll, I'll agree to that. It's very limited on LinkedIn. And I, I honestly think they're taking that data and selling that like hotcakes to bigger cats. Cause yeah, that, that stupid little thing that you see like the reach and whenever I looked at my cuts, I've been in big data for about 15 years. I know almost every API that's out there for putting that kind of data in there. D3, you know, all these other ones. And to see you having such a rudimentary uh, breakdown is yeah. insulting. Yeah. Right. That's insulting. Like get like if I have to pay a little bit more, okay, I see there's a little bit of a of an angle there, but you're not even giving that option. You're just saying, here's vanilla. That's all we got. <laughs> yeah. All right. Literally, it's it's so frustrating. I mean just like 
no no real analytics like they'll tell you maybe where people are from where they work what their job title is but that even is not like a solid breakdown really it's just like it there's so much more that i feel like linkedin could have done from a ux ui perspective that they just didn't do um and maybe they feel like it was a big update that was overdue and i get that but there's definitely um still something to be said about a lot of platforms that don't have a robust feedback mechanism for people to actually tell developers what they want right um what users who use apps and websites on a daily basis what they want to see and what would make the platform more accessible to them no matter who they are um so i don't i don't know what your thoughts are on build growing that relationship between user experience and developer um implementation oh yeah <clears throat> so that's awesome because uh, what i would say to that is there's there are like four people that I know I need to satisfy when I do the work that I do. Uh, at the end, it's the customer. And I'm gonna work from backwards to the top. So it's the customer, then it's developers, then it's stakeholders, and then it's me. And I'm sort of like air, like I kind of like float through all these cats, right? But if the customer really, really wants something, the first thing we have to identify is what's the lift? Meaning what's it gonna take to get that done? And in a lot of cases, stakeholders, they're not always aligned with what the customer wants. And that could be LinkedIn, right? I don't know a lot about it. I mean, I could talk a ton about ADP, uh, having used their product, having interviewed with them, having seen all the inner workings with them. And if anybody's worked with ADP, <clears throat> what a challenge trying to, trying to do that, man. Uh, however, Getting back to the, the issue at hand, what the customer wants may not be something that the product can deliver right away. And sometimes I'll find that stakeholders will push developers really hard for a feature set that's by a small amount of people. And then there is something else uh, that goes on with developers, which is, or, or stakeholders, where they may not see the effort required and they just keep pushing. And developers, you know, developers are like mechanics, right? They're going to build it, they're going to fix it, and then that's it. They move on to the next next project. And unless you have the three aligned, or at least as aligned as you can get it, yeah, you'll find yourself with a product that's half-baked, you know, that, that just won't hit expectation. It won't be what the customer wants. And I'm not saying it's easy, by no means, because I, I know for myself, I've had things where I thought, oh, this sounds like a cool idea. We have some research on it. We go and implement it and find out, oh my God, that was so much more complicated than we thought it was going to be. And and I, what it boils down to is the research, right? If you know what you're getting into, uh, you want to have that research up front. You want to try to get research as quickly as you can and feedback as quickly as you can because you don't want someone like me going and spending 60 hours to go build something only to find out that you can't, it's going to take nine months to go build now. You know, a tour, yeah, and, and that's usually what happens. Not usually, forgive me. Uh, I've seen that happen, but uh, that usually happens when you don't have a team that is experienced in doing this kind of stuff, which I think leads to uh, one challenge that I see in the design world is ageism, where the agencies are very quick to hire young talent. Why? It's inexpensive, and they, like, let's say, know it all. And I laugh and I think, dude, I've been using Photoshop since it was version 1.5. Yeah. 
right? Cool. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. And I'll, and I'll tell you right now. I'll tell you right now. I haven't used that piece of software for like almost 20 years. Out of a scale of one to five, I might be a three. Hmm. Might be a three. Like low, like below three. Because it's a program where photographers use it one way. Designers use it another way. And uh, artists use it another way. And then if you start to identify those categories, like a visual designer versus a UI designer, a still life photographer versus a portrait photographer, uh, and then a artist, I mean, there you go, like abstract, whatever, whatever. Yeah, the software becomes quite deep. And then you compare that to LinkedIn. You're like, all right, how many different types of people are coming here? How many different types of people are trying to use it? And all of a sudden it becomes complicated to try to make it work for one particular group. It's not to say you can't do it, but it's to say, yeah, if I identify a particular group within LinkedIn, like if there's publishers and that kind of stuff, I may have certain features for them. Why? Because they are publishers. They need that. Someone like myself. Yeah, I'm not into that. What am I looking for? I'm looking for the person who has a project ready, ready to go. Like if I had, if they had that option, like, yo, like they, I know they point out for, um, uh, opportunities for, um, like jobs. If they had one for RFPs, I never leave, right? Because yeah. I was, yo, it's all right there. And then yeah. it's almost like the like uh, like you go to um, Fiverr or these other groups where you can, um, or even Upwork, uh, you can find the talent right there. If the project was there, you, you could probably do a very similar thing and even charge a premium for that. Because if I know the project is anywhere between 10 to 20,000 and let's say LinkedIn gets 0.1% of that. Cool. Yeah, yeah cool. You know, that would be awesome to have that. But yeah, these are conversations where when you start to talk to dev or or to the product team, you try to figure out, well, what are you guys doing? And then a lot of times they're like, uh, you know, if it's anything like I've been in, you're usually chasing their tails because they've got other things that are either on fire or uh, a lot of programs are like legacy. So they may not be as up to speed. So you got to try to worry about that stuff. But yeah, somehow they get it going. They figure it out. Yeah. Um. So on the topic of ageism and on the topic of sites like Fiverr and Upwork. So there are rumors that LinkedIn is looking to add something like that to the platform where people can hire contractors directly from LinkedIn. Uh, whether or not that'll be just like a native service, like jobs and stuff that are suggested or whether that'll be a paid like premium feature. Is yeah, yeah, that's whatever. Yeah, I mean, so what is, has been your experience in working with um, people of all ages and also like trying to create space for more diverse um, designers within the UX uh, field in terms of mm -hmm. making their, you know, thoughts and perspectives inclusive and, and just working to create agency for people who maybe haven't typically been in the design field. Um, yeah, awesome. Awesome. So for me, I have always been uh, around people that don't necessarily bolt up to my world and i'll give you an example <clears throat> i absolutely I, I absolutely believe that a designer is marginalized by their understanding of tech so if that designer just knows wix that's all they can design for if that designer knows wordpress that's a little bit more than wix they could do more if the designer is aware of enterprise applications they can do a lot more but you have to know code and the majority of visual designers that I'm around, they like, ugh, it's like nails on chalkboard, but they freak out. 
And I told them, yeah, but it's, if you don't know that, how do you know how to build it? How do you know how to set up your layout? And how do you know how to talk to a developer? A lot of times developers or designers will create something and do what's called throw it over the wall. Go figure it out. And you know what a developer's gonna do? Developers are like, oh, does that button click? Cool. That's it. That's it. Yeah, and it's crazy because when you think about the challenges they're facing, if your layout doesn't bolt up to that UI framework, yeah, then it's a joke. It's like it's like me coming to you saying, all right, I'm gonna I want you to print me a book, <clears throat> but I want all of the pages to be made of gold. Like, well, how are you gonna do that? Oh, I don't know, just go figure it out. And that's it. It's like you're nuts. Like, what what do you mean gold? Like, what kind of gold? Like there's all kinds of gold to start with. Rose gold, yellow gold, white gold. <clears throat> how thick do you want it? Uh, are you gonna put pictures on it? You know, are you gonna put text if you are? What's the size of the text? So it gets into all this like wild stuff. And I think, yo, did you think about any of that before you get into it? So that would be number one. But where I think um, when it comes to inclusion with that, the problem is a lot of people have the wrong perception on experience. And experience gets a bad rep. And I and I think companies don't realize until it's too late. So when it comes to ageism, when it comes to people in the industry, you'll see that there are people that are older that may not know the tech that well. And I got you. I get it, right? It's changing every second of the day. Tech is changing. However, they know how to put things into a process. And there's a constant struggle between process and protocols to try to get it done because it's changing a lot. However, if you don't have that stuff in place and you just continue to run like a chicken without a head, well, what you're going to find out is you're going to have a product that whenever there's a mistake or a change, it's really hard to make that change. It's easy to drive straight. No problem driving straight, but nothing is straight. That road to success is like all over the place. And you need to have somebody who can help guide it to say, yeah, you know what? Let's focus our energies on building like a repository for our, our components. Let's build something that is a consistency so that whenever we have a problem, or if I'm not here, you know to go look at this and say, oh, that's the way it should look. And then you go and address that. But in most cases, people look at younger town as, yeah, it's less expensive. I can hire four or five more people to go get it done. Or another awesome one is when they go offshore where people will say, oh yeah, I can go offshore and I can hire 10 people for the price of two here in the States. And I hear that. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You can. But here in the States, I only asked them once because there's a get it factor. Over there, I may have to ask them two, three, maybe even four times. Why? They don't get it. So even, you know, again, American to American, and it's not to discredit offshore because I think there's a lot of benefits to guys offshore. But I also know that if you think that because you're saving a couple of bucks because they're less, but you're spending more time to get it done. Well, I find that to be really dumb because well, you're just wasting time versus if I pay it once to get it done right the first time because the dude gets it, we're cool, right? Mm -hmm. and, and again, like you just have to know how to pick it. So <clears throat> I, I've seen it from working in large applications where I think offshore solutions are a better way to go. I do think offshore should be a part of your, of your team because then you have a 24 hour shop versus just here in the States. I think, yeah, you totally have to do that. But yeah, you have to know when you're building these teams from an experience, uh, like a management experience, I know that, yeah, I, I know what to trust these guys to go do. And I know what I need these guys to go do to get that together. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I appreciate you breaking that down. Um, 
and just really breaking down like what it means to have a team that functions the way that you need it to because that's also a part of the design experience right like mm -hmm. how can i how can these pieces of the puzzle fit to make work what i need to work for yeah for this platform yeah. Um, yeah but that also gets into with designers that are non-technical so I, I i lightly touched on that earlier but if i could give any advice like the so the joey that came out of south philly was this nerdy creative dude that i was uh like my dad was always mechanically inclined so i was always curious to how things got built but my mom was very artistic with stuff so like i get that south philly italian side and then i got my dad's irish side when it comes to like looking at something and like okay mechanically this is how it has to work so i have th those two balances however when i would do when i first met the internet i was definitely afraid of it because i didn't know like I, I i knew it was changing everything of my life when i first saw it and what i started doing was copying pasting code and i had no idea what i was doing and i learned i learned code that way the hardest way possible no one to give me any advice and i Man, I seriously felt like I was cutting off my fingers every time I was trying to write code and like you write it again. Like, what does TD mean versus TR? What's table? And, uh, you know, I don't know any of this stuff. So anyway, you learn everything the hard way. But I bring this up because then knowing how it's built, when I do my design work, I know at a minimum this could be done. So I don't have to give something to the developers like I don't get it. Like, oh, you don't get it? Cool. Let me help you break it down. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, it, have you ever read the book Fountainhead? No. Okay, so Fountainhead, despite you know the the, the author Ayn Rand and a lot of her you know terrible views, the book Fountainhead is awesome because it talks about an architect who his name is Howard Work and he started off as like a layman doing the actual work and then as his career progressed, he got more into the architectural part, but he knows how everything goes together, and I think that's a that's a uh, a challenge that our younger community needs to learn about because it's far too often that they'll grab a template or they'll grab something already done and use it but have no idea how it works so inevitably something's going to break and then when it breaks it's like well how do you fix it and like i don't know and what they do they'll throw it out put another one in oh that one broke okay throw that out put another one in and they'll keep doing that until they finally get something to work and i think well, it, I mean, you got it, but if you learned why it broke in the first place, you wouldn't have that problem. And that unfortunately takes time. And that's where experience comes in. And I think, yeah, this is where a lot of guys will just run and grab the latest trend, the latest template. Hey, this is awesome. But then in six months, you're changing it. And, you know, there's you don't have any, there's no substance to it. And while it might be good for the short term game, it's absolutely awful for long term because then you really don't know that you're beholden to the tech that's out there and yeah you don't know what to do after that yeah 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 oh, man. thank you for breaking that down um getting into non-technical and technical founders and coders and developers that's just like i don't know something i'm still getting used to learning about and hearing about because i mean like people's probably only example of a combination of a technical and non-technical founders like Steve Jobs from Apple and the guy that was the actual like <laughs> Steve Wozniak. Steve yeah. Wozniak, yeah. So it's like, okay, like that's people's only perception of how a technical and non-technical founder can work together. Um, mm -hmm. but that's not the only example, right? I mean it's it's there's definitely different ways where that puzzle piece can fit together. And some of it too is not to say that people who are non-technical founders don't know some level 
of the technical side of things, right? Um, so it's also important to have a partnership where people know realistically what can be done within a certain time frame and what can be done with available. Too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and that's an awesome point because I think at, at that that touches on management, like expectations, uh, and I've seen it far too often. Like I said earlier, I look to remove all emotion from from any design conversation. I pull the emotion out of it because the second someone says I want the logo bigger, I'm thinking, I mean, yeah, you're the boss, but if I'm going to be subjective or objective, I'm going to tell you that if you make it bigger, it changes the framework, which means that we have to change up all this other stuff. It's not to say we can't do it, but it's going to cost this. How much of this do you want to spend to do that? And a lot of times you're like, eh, making it 5% bigger isn't really that big a thing. I'm like, yeah, because it isn't, dude. That's a stupid thing to go wish away. Thank you for waking up. You don't need to do that, man. Focus on selling the damn thing, the logo, whatever, you know? So yeah, sorry, a little bit of the Philly came out, but uh <laughs> <laughs> so good. Oh man, from Philly to New York to here on my screen. Thank you so much for joining me today, Julie. I really enjoyed our talk. Um awesome. love having creative entrepreneurs on here who just bring a different perspective to what it means to blend creativity with owning a business with just being a person who is trying to create something for good. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me.